roughly 30 years old, uh, maybe a little bit older, and that he reigned for 42 years. And the reason for the two years is this, was that we're going to see that the kingship is going to be rejected. And even though he will be king, he will only really be seen as king by God. Um, and, and so there's, because this is a, a theological history, it's being put together after the fact, right, that there's some opinion maybe being put into some of these numbers, that it seems that in the original what it says was Saul was blank years old, and he served for blank years, and then people were trying to figure out what the answers were there. Um, and so there was a, there's a little bit of difficulty in verse 1. Um, remember in chapter 8, when and he's going to take your daughters, and he's going to tax you, and he's going to take his land, take your land. We see that right already now in the first couple of years of Saul's kingship in verse 2, that Saul has chose 3,000 men of Israel. He's beginning to build an army here. If you look in chapter 14 at verse 52, there were hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Basically saying, when he saw a dude that could help him in fight, he took him. Right? That we're seeing these predictions of Samuel of how the king would handle them already beginning to come true in the early stages and days of Saul's kingship. Um, and, and you'll see a phrase here that we're going to see often in chapter 13 and 14. And as you're reading through it, I want to clarify that you, you understand what's going on. That he's going to say the people of Israel, and then we're going to see the phrase Hebrews. Now, we use those two phrases interchangeably, right? That we call the Hebrews, the people of Israel, the people of Israel, the Hebrews. But it's going to be used differently here in Samuel because the Hebrews was actually kind of a derogatory term, and the Philistines used it to describe anyone who wasn't really a Philistine who was in that area. And so ethnically, they're not um, from Abraham. Right? But they're, they're almost like cousins. Right? They're, they're close, and they're in the area. You can go back to genealogies in Genesis 11 if you really want to go through there and study that. And, and so they're using Hebrews as a little bit of a larger thing. And so whenever it talks about the Hebrews being a part of, of Saul's army and the people of Israel, the Hebrews were basically hirelings. Right? People who were in the area that just kind of, hey, who do we think is going to win? Philistines, then we're going to go fight with them. Israel, then we're going to go fight with them. And you're going to see them multiple times in chapter 13 and 14, leaving the Philistines to fight for Israel, or leaving Israel to go fight, or leaving just to go hide. Right? That they're just kind of like playing the odds. Um, and so as you're reading through it, if, if you feel confused as who are these Hebrews that keep hiding, um, it's not actually the people of Israel. And so we have a scene set up now that the reason right, that they wanted a king was because they were surrounded by enemies. And the Philistines are here. They're wanting to fight. And Saul, they wanted a king to lead them in battle. Right? And so this is kind of where 13 has started, is that there is um, a battle about to take place. And the people are afraid, and they're trembling, and they're scared. And what do they want? They want a leader one who will go out and fight their battles, who will provide good leadership, and who will care for them. Forgetting that God has done this. So let's see how Saul handles this threat. Pick up in verse 8. So Saul waited seven days, the time that had been appointed by Samuel. Right. So they, there's, they're on the eve of battle. 
But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offerings here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, and I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For when the Lord, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel rose up and went from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army, and they went from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. All right, so like the story just kind of trained, like changes drastically and quickly, right? That we have a battle about to come up, and we see Saul waiting. That he and Samuel at some point had determined, hey, I'll come up in seven days. We'll, we'll see what the Lord has to say, and then we will respond in kind. And we see really from Saul weak leadership, right? That as he is waiting, that he is antsy. That he is wondering, he's watching. Like you can imagine him sitting out going, okay, do you see Samuel? Is he coming? Is he coming? Man, what do I do? Because the people are fearful and they're trembling and they're beginning to leave. Right? And so he's seeing his army dwindle and he's out, able to look out and see the Philistines like they're, they're moving, right? They're gathering and they're coming. And so in this moment... Right? You want strong leadership. You want the king right, to lead the people to make decisive decisions. And instead, even though there had been an agreement with the prophet of God, he chooses to ignore that. And he's like, well, at least maybe we can like, rub some good luck on it. I'll just, I'll, right? He doesn't say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pursue the Lord. I'm going to seek the Lord. He's like, I'm going to do the offerings, and maybe we'll get some favor. And he begins to take on the role that was Samuel's. And about the time he does it, right, a lot of us, we can think about our, our childhood or our kids now, and you have this moment, right, man, it's like right when I decide to sin, that's when someone walks in the door, right? And you're like, what are you doing? Ah, like, nothing. I'm not doing anything, right? You're like, yeah, I, I, you've been caught. That, that Saul here is laying out the offerings when Samuel comes up. Samuel says, what are you doing? Saul begins to try to explain himself. But do you notice what he does? Again, this is the king. Like He could have even had like false bravado and said, I'm doing what I want because guess what, Samuel? I'm the king. Right? Like That would have at least looked kingly. And what does he do? He's like, the people are leaving. Like my army's going away. By the way, Samuel, you haven't, you weren't here. And look, the the enemy is coming. Right? Like he begins to make excuses. They're leaving. They're coming. You're at fault. Like who can I throw blame on? Right? Who does it remind you of? It's Adam, in the garden. Right? That when when Eve 
takes and eats of the fruit, and then God comes looking for them, and they're hiding. He says, hey, so Adam, what's going on? He's like, well, the woman you gave me, right? Like, God, you share some blame in this because you gave her to me. And, and he puts the blame on her, and he puts the blame on God, and he hides. What he doesn't do is take responsibility. Right? That we see Samuel here doing, sorry, Saul here doing the same thing. There's too many S's. Um, that he is making excuses, that he is blaming people. And, and so look at what Samuel does. He says, you have done foolishly. Verse 13, you have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. Then he would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Um, reading between two lines, you're not it. And the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Chapter 12, right, he tells them, do what I ask and it will be well with you. Don't and my hand will be against you. Now listen, there, there could be a sense here where this feels like an overreaction. Right? Like, what has he really done wrong? Why is Samuel responding so firmly and so strongly? Because God is their king. Right? Like he is in control, and the king has to know that. That he is not king like the other nations, getting to do what he wants with no, no checks and balances. God is king. And He has set up Samuel as prophet, and He has called them to live right in obedience to Him. And what is, what is Saul doing? He is letting his circumstances dictate his response. Right? He's looking and seeing the situation, and there's no faith. Right? There's only fear. And so he is rebelling against God. He is showing independence. Do you notice what he doesn't do? He doesn't pray. He doesn't seek God. He doesn't wait on the man of God. We've seen this when, right when he was looking for his, his donkeys. It was his servant who said, hey, there's a man of God. Maybe we should ask him. Saul's just like, I just want to go home. Right? Like, that he continues to be spiritually numb and blind. That his first instinct wasn't to turn to God, but it was to, to take on in his control what he could do. And so Samuel says, listen, you're a, you're a fool. And this isn't just Samuel saying you're, you're an idiot, right? Listen to what Psalm 14.1. Scripture just defines a fool a little differently. Psalm 14.1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. And so what he's saying is, listen, you didn't just have the, it's not just that you're a fool because you're not smart or you're a fool because you didn't have the right intellectual information. A fool is someone who is morally and spiritually like at a deficit. Who is saying, like, I don't, like, there may be a God, but he's not going to rule me. I'm not going to follow him. I'm not going to obey him. And so what do we see Saul doing here? He is being a fool because God has called him and said, here's what I'm going to do with you, but I want you to obey me. You have to obey me. And now he's not obeying, and he's doing what he wants without entreating, praying, or seeking the Lord. And so God says, listen, the kingship is gone, man. I'm taking it from you. Your line will not be the kingly line any longer. 
He's, he's challenged the spiritual authority, or at the minimum, he's disregarded it. Listen, Saul has failed to trust and remember that we're within a first couple years of his kingship, and like that God called him and affirmed it over and over and over again, even when Saul didn't want to be king, right? That Samuel's speech, he was reminded, God's going to be with you if you will obey me. Like the story of the people of Israel, their entire history was God intervening to rescue and to care for them. Like Saul is forgetting all of this, trying to take it upon his, in his own hands. And because he is failing to, to, to learn from history, he's repeating it. So the kingship is, is taken here. He was unwilling to wait on God. And he felt the circumstances of his situation dictated his action. All right, church. Are we willing to trust God when our circumstances seem bad? When our circumstances seem to dictate other action, are we going to see with faith? Or are we only going to see right with what our eyes can reveal? Because what was Saul seeing? His army leaving? Samuel not physically present? And his enemy? He was not seeing with faith that God had said, I'm with you. That I will deliver. That I will rescue. That I will lead. That I will go before you in battle. He was only seeing what he could see with his eyes. And because of that, he acted in a way that displeased, dishonored, and disobeyed God. So the question for us this morning is, is sometimes our circumstances look like this, right? As a church, as an individual, as a family, as a nation, that our circumstances seem to say, hey, I think God maybe has abandoned us here. Are we willing to wait, to trust, to follow God, or are we going to do what we deem best? And maybe even try to spiritualize it a little bit, right? Because Saul goes to commit the sacrifices to gain favor, even though he was sinning in the process. Like, I'm not going to listen to you, God, but this might make things go my way if I kind of seem like I'm trying to appease you. Right? When we try to baptize our sin, or we try to baptize our, our, our spiritual um, foolishness by saying we prayed about it. I didn't speak, but I prayed about it. Or taking promises and twisting them a little bit. Right? Or saying, God told me, even when there's no fruit indicative of that. Right? Did, did, are we willing to wait? Are we willing to trust God? So listen, here's a, a, a few things here. Jesus is with us. He has promised to never leave us, nor forsake us. And sometimes suffering and difficulty and struggle and hard circumstances are a part of our story. And here's the promise. It's not that you won't face it. It's like if you're in it, that you're like, something's wrong. Suffering is part of it. But none of it will be wasted. And so are we able to, to be in it for a moment and trust that Jesus hasn't left us, that He hasn't forsaken us? Do we believe that this world isn't our home, that we're headed home? And that what we're going to get for all eternity is glory. And it will make anything we face in this world seem minor in comparison. The weight of glory that's coming for us. 
Do we, do we trust that our rescue has actually already occurred for those who are in Christ? If you know Jesus this morning, the greatest rescue you needed has happened. Like you're at peace with God. He's with you and He is for you. And so what that means, though, is there's more at play than what we can see. Paul will say in Ephesians, right, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against powers and principalities, right? It's in the spirit realm, in the spirit world. Because we're actually, we're rescued people. And so this world doesn't hold sway over us. They can take your life. And yet, the Lord has your soul, and you will be resurrected for all time and all eternity. It's why Paul could boldly go to prison. It's why martyrs throughout the last 2,000 years could gladly go and be burned at the stake or drowned or tortured or beaten because they're like, what are you going to do? I'll dine with the king tonight. Like That's not like flippancy. That's truth. To be apart from our bodies to be present with our Lord. And so man can threaten our lives, but God has our souls. And so the difficulty and the circumstances in this life, for those who are in Christ, it's temporary. And it will not get the final say. And Saul here is panicking because things seem tense. Church, we have to know that when we feel like things are tense, when circumstances are less than pleasant, that we often are going to make poor decisions, especially if we're not going to the Lord in prayer. If we're not going to the Scriptures, if we're not coming to Him and asking for wisdom and guidance, that our initial response will almost always be wrong. It'll be sinful and it'll be about self-preservation and we'll have all of the excuses lined up. And so as, as we see this scene, it's going to continue now, right? Because, listen, I, can you imagine, like Samuel just kind of drops this bomb. Kingship's no longer on you. You're still the king, but it won't continue. And then he leaves. And there's still an enemy. And so like Saul's like, well, huh. And so the story here continues, right? He's got he's to do something. And so what we're going to see in the rest of this, and listen, we're not, we're not going to be able to read all of this, um, but we're going to see kind of a comparison and a contrast between um, Saul and his son, Jonathan. Listen, in, in chapter 9, verse 16, and in verse 1 of chapter 10, Saul had been told, you'll deliver. Like, you'll deliver the people from the Philistines. And yet, what is he doing here? He's, in, he's waiting. He's not acting at all. He just continues to sit now. And so when he should have been praying, he wanted to act. And now that he should be acting, he's just sitting around like twiddling his thumbs. And so what we're going to see in, in, in the rest of 13 and 14 is Jonathan, his son, begin to act. And so look, look at chapter 14. So one day jo- Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go to the other side of the Philistine garrison. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gabi in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Right, now go to verse 4. And within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Boaz and the name of the other, Sanah. One of these basically means thorny. The other one means shiny. Right, so it's like slick and the sun shines off of it. The other one's thorny. They're like cliffs. 
It's not really where you want to be. Um, the one rose on the north side and the other on the south side. So Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by a few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with your heart and soul. And Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we'll stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hands and this will be the sign to us. Right? So we see Jonathan saying, Listen, these are the enemies of the Lord. My Father's been promised that we'll defeat them. We're not doing anything. So you and I, we're going to go fight. And by faith, it doesn't matter if there's many of us or few of us, because the Lord is with us. And we see this just distinct difference in that He is seen by faith, and He is trusting God. And so He is willing to act in faith and obedience. And then He even doesn't just pre- presume upon the Lord of like, you have to deliver us. He says, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put out kind of a, a, a fleece here, right? If they say this, then we're not, we're not going to go. But if they say this, then that's the Lord telling us that He's going to deliver some victory. All right, let's see what they say. Verse 12, And the men of the garrison, when they saw Jonathan and his armor bearer, they hailed him and said, Come up to us, and we'll show you a thing. Right? Basically what they're saying is, Come up here, we're going to teach you a lesson. And so they climb. Verse 13, Jonathan climbed on his hands and his feet and his armor bearer after him. Right? Like they're climbing up a cliff to a garrison of 20-some-odd men up there. And they're like, hey, come up here. We're going to teach you a lesson. So Jonathan and one other man go up. And they fell before Jonathan. And his armor bearer killed them after. After that first strike was which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, they killed about 20 men in about half of an acre of land. And there was panic in the camp and in the field and among all the people and the garrison and even the raiders trembled and the earth quaked and it became a great planet. Uh, panic, sorry. So Jonathan, right, is, is showing the kind of bold leadership and trust in God and faith that his father is supposed to be doing. Right, that he goes in, in lack. There's two of them, verses 20 plus. If you see at the end of chapter 13, there's this like little side note in, in the history there that it says the Philistines... Right, were great with metal. They were already in the Iron Age, if you're a history person. Israel's still in the Bronze Age, which means they had superior technology. The Philistines did. And in order to hold on to it, they didn't teach anyone how to use it. They had to go to the Philistines and pay them, which then kept them economically disadvantaged as well, to repair weapons, to make weapons, to do things, to repair plows and, and anything that was metal-related. And so it says that only Saul and Jonathan even had a good weapon. And so they went up two on 20 plus with inferior tech, but the hand of the Lord was with them. And he led with faith, right? With boldness and trusting the Lord. And we see even God intervening then on his behalf in verse 15 as the earth quakes, just leading to further panic. And so if you're looking through this section though, we see Saul. Look at verse 18. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. We've seen this before, where they try to bring the ark to help make, like, be like a weaponized version of God. 
Please bring in the ark. They haven't learned their lesson. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. And when Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult, like the noise in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. And so Saul said to the priests, withdraw your hand. Right. So now he goes and he's asking the priests to, to, to seek the Lord, to do something. And as soon as he hears the noise, he's like, okay, priest, stop what you're doing. Let's see what's going on. And they begin to find that Jonathan is, is gone, that his armor bearer is gone. And so that there's, there's a battle to be had. So look at verse 21. The Hebrews who had been with the Philistines, right? So these are the hirelings before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp. Even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. And so the Lord saved Israel that day. Right? So we see Saul ultimately get his win, that he runs off the Philistines because of Jonathan's courage and bravery and the hand of God. And you're thinking, okay, can we please end here, right? Saul's going to survive another day. But Saul continues to show that he's not a great leader. Because listen in verse 24. The men of Israel who had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul laid on an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. But what are they doing? They're chasing their enemies through really rough, rocky terrain. There was no need to do this other than he just kind of rashly throws out a vow. And what's going to happen is because his son Jonathan and the armor bearer are off, they weren't with the people when they make it, they chase the Philistines into a forest, and in it there's a honeycomb that's been spilled onto the ground, and Jonathan shoves his, the tip of his spear into it and eats it, and his energy right, is returned because he's eating calories and they're working hard, um, and yet he has gone against the vow and oath of his father. And so when the people finally... Um, run past the Philistines, they defeat them, they go into battle, they've won, and they take the spoil. They just start killing animals right and left and eating them. Right? They're not sacrificing them, they're not draining the blood, they were not allowed, based on Levitical law, to eat the meat with the blood, and yet they're doing it because they're starved, because Saul has made a foolish oath. And so eventually it comes clear to the people, something like God's not speaking, something's wrong, so Saul calls for the lots to be cast. Let's figure out, is it, is it, did I do something again to the people? And it eventually falls on the fact that it's Jonathan and that Jonathan has broken his dad's vow. All right, and so let's pick up in verse 43. Um, he says, Therefore Saul said, O Lord, God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? This is verse 41. If the guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, and the people escaped. And Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. And Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Am I going to die? We see like sarcasm from Jonathan. Right? Of like, Am I going to die because I ate honey? when the people told him earlier what his father had said, he's like, my father is making bad decisions. He shouldn't have done that. He's bringing trouble upon us. 
And so the, he decides to kill him. Until the army steps up, we'll see here at the end of chapter 14. And they're like, you're not killing him. He won the battle. Like, it's because of him. And they basically tell Saul, you're not taking him. And so in this whole 13 and 14, we just see, like, Saul is making rash words. When, when he's in charge, people are leaving. And then the army's willing to stand up against him. When he, and so, like, he's just a, a, a poor leader all the way around. So ultimately, you're thinking, man, Saul is just getting dumped on here. In chapters 13 and 14, what is going on? And here's the thing, Saul is being revealed to the people that he isn't the redeemer, right? That he's not the rescuer. They asked for a king and they got judgment because they didn't trust God as their king. The people of God are learning something too. It's an opportunity for them to learn not to put their hope and their faith in a man or a system. That they had God. And they've taken a lesser thing and it will not care for them and it will not satisfy them. They have displaced their hope. And even though Saul is outwardly impressive, it will fail. Church, our faith and our hope is not in a man. And it's not in a system. It is not in democracy. It is not in socialism. It is not in any form of government known to man. It's not in a monarchy. It is not in any one. It is in Jesus. He is our King. And He is our hope. And we put our hope in Him and it will not be displaced. He will stand strong. He sits on His throne today laughing in derision as the nations plot and rage against Him. That is our King. And when we look at outwardly impressive militaries or governments or men or women or leaders or situations, they will fail us every time. And our hope that's placed in them will be displaced. As you see, just the, the bad leadership of Saul here. As you see him panicking in his circumstances. Does your mind maybe wander to the Garden of Gethsemane? Where Jesus, his circumstances are really bad, like he is being hunted in order to have a, fa a farce of a trial and be ultimately killed? where his disciples are failing to, to spiritually be with him and be present. They're falling asleep, and he is crying out to God, if there's another way, I'll take it. But God, not what I want, what you want. For, for your will be done. And then he goes willingly to the cross to rescue us, those who put him on the cross, who have rebelled against Him, who have sought our own way, who are quick to blame shift. Listen, if there's someone in this story that we are, it's Saul. We are blame shifters. right? We're putting our hope in other things. right? We fail to, to, to pursue the Lord. And yet we are rescued because Jesus is the leader and the King that we needed. That He has given us peace that only He could obtain in our efforts, in our striving, in our religious activity, or in our pursuit of pleasure. We can't find peace. But it's been given to us by Jesus. That Jesus doesn't speak rash words to trip us up and to trap us. That He gives leadership and action, rescue, not only from the wrath of God and from the world, but also from ourselves because we 
our own worst enemy. And then He knows us and we're safe with Him. He will not let us down and our hope will not be displaced in Jesus. So this morning, if your hope is rattled and shaken because of anything going on in the world, right? then, then we put our hope too much in something other than Jesus. Because our circumstances can be less than ideal and Jesus who says, I am with you. And I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. And you're at peace with Him for all of eternity. Now listen, that doesn't mean that we can't be displeased or that we can't be frustrated. Right? We still live in, a, in, in this world. But is your hope this morning, is it, sh- is it shook? Or is it rooted in the solid ground, the solid rock of Jesus? And are we seeking Him? Or are we responding as Saul did? In terror and in fear and in excuse making, try to fix something that we couldn't fix to begin with. And so what we want and what we desire is to know Him. To know Jesus. To be transformed by Him, knowing then that He is going to allow us to be ambassadors of reconciliation in this world. There are people that do not know Jesus right now who are celebrating in this world for whatever reason who are going to get to come to know Him. Right? They're seeking peace. They're seeking hope. And they're going to get to know Him because He's going to put you in their life and you're going to get to be an, an ambassador of hope and of peace. And then they're going to love Jesus and give Him worship. Not because you had the right words, but because God is faithful to save and to rescue and His arm is not short. And we get to do that until the day He calls us home. Or then we will spend eternity with the church, and with the church's groom, Jesus. Right? In glory and in vindication. Church, would we not be fearful? Would we be bold? And would we trust and pursue a good leader and a good king in Jesus? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your mercy upon us. Thank You that Your Word, um, sections of it like this that are some 3,000 years old, um, still speak to us. God, would we not find ourselves bogged down in the weeds and the nuance of, of, of old history, but God, would we see Your character and Your calling shine forth. God, that we don't have... God, we have something to put our hope in. We are not a people without hope or peace. God, our anchor is deep and it's strong because of You. And so, Father, if we find ourselves being tossed to and fro far too much, God, would we this morning ask, like, am I anchored in Jesus? And Lord, would You speak? Would You call? God, would, would You confirm for those who, who do know You that they do? And, and for those who don't, Lord, would You they hear you call them by name and say, come, taste, and eat freely without cost because I've done it for you. Father, would we confess um, lack of faith? Um, oh, would we confess fear? Um, and Father, would we be bolstered by you? God, it doesn't, we, we, we know that it doesn't mean that we have to be ignorant to the things of the world or that we're not affected by it, God, but would we be rooted in you. And because of that, be transformed. To be light and salt and hope 
that is seen as we rightly reflect your nature and your character for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.